You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, episode 133. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook or via our 24-hour streaming radio station, pennystocks.fm. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. This week, we start by discussing the testimonial from Wall Street Bets, Reddit et al. before the House Financial Committee on the GameStop issue. Back by popular demand, we start with a case for and case against debate on surging small cap peak fintech group, symbol PKK on the Canadian Stock Exchange, a fintech service provider to the Chinese commercial lending sector. Brendan argues the bull case, I crush him with the bear case, and Aaron sits in as judge, jury, and executioner. In our Your Stock Our Take, Aaron answers a question on two REITs sent in by a listener. While both REITs, Granite Industrial REIT, symbol GRT.UN on the TSX, and BSR REIT, symbol HOM.U on the TSX, are not directly comparable given that they operate in two different segments. Aaron lays out the valuations and some of the investment merits of each company. Finally, Brennan answers a listener question on Texas Inc., symbol TCS on the TSX, a great Canadian software success story which provides supply chain solutions that equip organizations with services and tools designed to create clarity out of the complex supply chain challenges that they face. We let you know if it's a buy, sell, or hold at current prices. Now, let's get into the show. I'd like to welcome my co-hosts, Brennan and Aaron. How are you two doing? Doing well, doing well. How about you guys? Doing well. But uh, good, good. But yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little taken back. You said that you're gonna crush me with the bear. Case really, you saw, you heard that group? slipped already... in there. I don't even know if you yeah. actually listened to the intro. So I just wanted to oh, see I if listen. you're still, I'm, still I'm alive here. there, right? So sometimes I'm sleeping. Oh, I'm just foreshadowing. That's all I do. Who, who, I, was, uh, yeah. who did you debate last, Brennan? Um, I think it was you, Aaron, and it was, was my that first the one W. That, you, that was your first victory. That mm. was my first. Didn't victory, you have a so. prediction that? prediction heading into this year about brennan's wins on the uh case for case <laughs> against debates the good thing is i think you were betting against him and you're the yeah. judge so yeah i remember that listener yeah i do remember that so that 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 doesn't bode well for for brennan but no I mean, already <laughs> i know uh, the fact that i'm judging no, but, uh, uh, we are uh, hard at work with ryan and it doesn't bode well for ryan either so that that might that may even things mm. out who knows we are hard at work, despite what it may sound like, on uh, some new research coming out in our U.S. research. We're looking at a U.S. dividend report, uh, looking at some dividend-producing companies in the U.S. to supplement some of our growth companies down there. Aaron, you're heading that. How's that coming? Oh, it's, it's it's great. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping we're going to have something out in the next, uh, the next couple of weeks here, but essentially what we did is we, we started off with a list of about 1,000 U.S. listed companies across all industries, all that pay dividends, all dividend pairs, and we just worked through the list 
uh, looking at the various companies, removing the ones step-by-step step that don't meet our criteria or that we don't find interesting. And now, now, right now, we're left with a list of about 80 companies. And from that list, um, I've narrowed it down even further to about 15 to 20 stocks that I could see actually being potentially a U.S. dividend portfolio. So it's, it's good to look down into the U.S., particularly for Canadians, because our market up here is so under- under diversified, um, we have so much exposure to, to financials and resources. That's over half the market. Not really much exposure to technology or healthcare. Almost nothing to healthcare. So it is it is good to to look in the U.S. where they just have better better diversity and breadth of opportunities. And yeah, we're we're definitely seeing a few interesting things. So yeah, it is interesting. I'm glad we're going to be you know covering that and providing that additional level of service to clients going forward. Now I look forward to seeing that. I look forward to working through it over the next couple of weeks and getting out some research. Now, I also said today we're going to start by talking about, and we've discussed the GameStop or Wall Street Bets Reddit issue uh, in past shows, but today, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, they all these figures involved in this case or this issue uh, testified in front of the House Financial Service Committee uh, today. Uh, one of the main testimonies came from Keith Roaring Kitty Gill, who laid out his case for why he invested in the struggling video game retailers, part of his testimony. Um, Gill is a retail investor known for, or he calls himself a retail investor, known for his YouTube and Reddit personas. Uh, along with him, it's the CEO of Robinhood, uh, Citadel, Reddit, and Melvin Capital all appeared as part of the committee's investigation into the wild uh, retail investor-driven short squeeze of GameStop's stock. Now, that squeeze shall Robinhood restrict purchases of the stock and Melvin, a hedge fund manager, which shorted the stock, lose billions of dollars. I think that... Even before commenting anything about the testimonial or, you know, the entire situation, what is very curious to me is that um, this has already come to a committee, uh, you know, a few weeks after it actually occurring when we do see uh, and have seen for years, if not, no, decades, sorry, um, hedge fund managers, big hedge fund managers do some disgusting things in the market and either get a slap on the wrist or just get, you know, maybe a small fine, uh, uh, are, uh, conducting themselves in ways that we think are not good for the markets, generally speaking. Uh, they're not hauled in front of a committee right away, but, you know, this these retail investor group is hauled in front of a, a committee within a couple of weeks after it happening. It seems like a little quick in terms of the regulatory uh the regulatory style and atmosphere that we've seen over the past several decades on the markets. Yeah. And I mean, like it didn't really hurt anybody except for Melvin capital. Is that correct? Essentially? I mean, I, I mean, there are other shorts on the stock too. Of as course, well, but of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess, but, but that's my point, you know, um, where a lot of the times these companies are making really large shorts. I mean, technically that's hurting the, the large shareholder base that's, you know, wanting this company to do well. But, you know, on the, the flip side, which we just saw, you know, there's a, a couple of hedge funds or big hedge funds that are, are shorting it, you know. Um, I, I just see, you know, not as many part market participants impacted. Maybe I'm, you know, going out of line there. I, I don't know if you guys agree with that. 
I think you're a little out of line. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But that's most of the time. I think yeah. you're just yeah. out of line. Uh, no, I mean, Order I, I, I see your point. I mean, yeah. So if you're just talking about the individual companies, obviously the shorters, that wasn't a good thing for them. Um, anybody who was buying as the stock was moving up on momentum only to get killed shortly after that wouldn't have been good for them. But I mean, all of these people, they're all playing the game, right? And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And it's the game of the markets. Whereas we don't see ourselves as playing the game. We see ourselves as investing, but there's always risk. So that's fine there. I, I would say that probably the greater concern is how does this work out going forward? I mean, is this basically just going to be the standard fare where, um, you know, discussion forum or internet chat groups are going to essentially be uh, controlling the movement of stock prices to the benefit of who knows who, various influencers. So that that would be a concern, but I'm not really sure. It's, it's, it's just one of those things. I mean, social media presents all of these difficulties and challenges that we never really thought about before social media came along. And this is something that we have to think about as people get together, they can collaborate and they can do things that, that have make big changes in stock markets or even other markets. And I'm sure, you know, these are, these are things like this are going to happen in the future and things somewhat similar that we still can't foresee yet um, are going to happen, you know? Yeah. Like we just have to be prepared for it and understand it. Sorry to cut you off there, Aaron. But yeah, I liked Kevin O'Leary's take on it. I watched an interview where, you know, he he basically said like these hedge funds that were taking a short knew the risk of shorting Mm -hmm. GameStop, you know, and, you know, of course, that's a risk that they overlooked, but that's a new risk that, uh, you know, uh, hedge funds are going to have to account for is this social media activism. You know, this is uh, or activism, sorry, like this is a new risk that they're going to have to take into account. So, you know, he said just the uh, on CNBC, I can't remember, but he was like, you know, I have no uh, empathy for them because, you know, their market participants, they understand the risk. They understand that something like this can happen. Uh, so, you know, I, I did uh, like that comment that Kevin O'Leary yeah. did make. Yeah. And we'll see what Kevin O'Leary says if something happens <laughs> like that to a stock that he owns. Um, but uh, Fair enough. I actually agree with him. I, I don't. I don't have <laughs> yes. any any sympathy for them. I mean that that is the risk, and and certainly mm-hmm. with shorters. I mean we've seen for years shorting companies. Many I'm sure affiliated with hedge funds that will take big short positions in companies, put out very inflammatory reports with a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of accusations that just aren't credible or, or are not fal- falsifiable. And uh, that causes the, the company to go down and they make money. So this is, you know, this is just another, I guess, uh, variation of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I, and I think that part, part of what we should point out here that this entire, you know, Wall Street bets, you know, there's people making money behind it, but part of it, People thought it was a big middle finger to the established head funds or, you know, big, big finance, essentially. And in this case, like the power over groups such as Wall Street bets can be fleeting. Uh, Many made money on the way up, obviously, but many also lost money on the way down. Like there were people piling money in, you know, at $100, $200, $300, $400, $500 and leveraging money into that. And, you know, the stock is gone down to 40 something dollars now like it was short term eventually stocks valuations in the market revert back to some level of normalcy based on cash flow based on the actual value of the business in the near term it can be irrational but in the over the long term it is going to revert back 
So some people lost a lot of money on this and not just the established head funds, but people following yeah, internet touts on this stock lost money if they were buying in later, you know, on the way up. So, you know, a group like that can have a fleeting presence over time. If you look at uh, if you look at the fact that you know the more people that lose money over time, the less people are going to pay attention. So you know we'll see and, what and, and comes would, of this over the long term. Yeah, I agree, and, and I'll just add to that. Um, I would I would like to see an investigation into just who who are the main influencers and you know how much money did they make off of that. Um, yeah. Without a doubt. And, and the, the, we would also like to see on the flip side uh, to some of the hedge funds or the short reports that come out on some companies that we, you know, we'll look at. Uh, there should be stringent investigation into that because if it's an absolutely spurious short report, you should be punished from that and you should not be you know, permitted to put out if, it, if the opinions weren't based on fact, in my opinion. Yeah. Now, I mean, you know, uh, there are some great investigators doing great short reports out there that should be published that are definitely right but if you're completely wrong you should also have some issue with that you know over time if you're completely wrong over time less people pay attention to you too but you know if we put out something absolutely false and and uh you know if the report that we had as a buy was made up on a company you know there would be issues right it should be the exact same on on if you're on the buy side or on the sell side or you know on the short or the long side sorry yeah and just the last point here is um i think this is kind of what aaron was asking is you know one of the one of the individuals that i saw on wall street bets he ended up making like a like he was first to GameStop or one of the first that were pumping it up. I don't know if it was that kitty guy. Uh, but anyways, he ended up investing about $5,000 in options and those options on GameStop and those options ended up turning into like $30 million. Now, of course, you know, he probably held on with diamond hands as they were calling it and didn't end up cashing in. Um, but anyways, yeah, some of the some of the gains that th- those guys that actually partook in it and, and were leading it, you know, some of those gains were absolutely, absolutely tremendous. Anyways, let's uh, let's move on to uh, me me winning a debate here. Yes, can anyone tell me why the name had to be Roaring Kitty though? I'm just I I'm just I, I have no idea where that comes from. But uh, now let's move to our case for case against debate on Peak FinTech Group. I am going to provide the case for or against, sorry, and Brennan will provide the case against. Let's look at Peak FinTech Group symbol PKK on the CSE currently trades at about $2.87 about a 206 or 76 million dollar market cap peak fintech is the parent company of a group of innovative financial or fintech subsidies subsidiaries operating in China's commercial lending industry uh, Peak's subsidiaries use technology, analytics, and artificial intelligence to create an ecosystem of lenders, borrowers, and other participants in Chinese China's commercial lending space where lending operations are conducted rapidly, safely, efficiently, and with the utmost transparency. So, Brennan, are you ready? And Aaron, are you ready to maybe keep a stopwatch there? Yeah, I, I and, have uh, my, uh, yeah. oh, you want to know what, actually? Um, this makes for great radio or podcast, whatever. Well, Aaron, I, are you ready? I, I no, normally use sorry. my cell phone. I noticed it's just about to die, but if it does, then I will I will have a, a backup Perfect. here. So, um, well, plug that sucker in. Good. And, and yes. you're, you're ready for a minute of the case for FinTech 
peak fintech, Brennan, correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay. And just uh, say go, Aaron, and I will go. Excellent. Go. Fintech stocks are hot right now, and Peak's lending hub ecosystem, which brings together small businesses and lending institutions, is like Uber for loans. Number two, absolutely tremendous revenue growth, growing revenue at 235% this quarter over the same quarter last year. Number three, the company has a healthy cash-rich balance sheet with approximately $3.4 million in net cash. Number four, although the company isn't profitable on an earnings basis, it has posted positive adjusted EBITDA over the last 12 trailing months at just under $1 million and earned 1.5 million in adjusted EBITDA for the 2019 fiscal year. Number five, management provided 2020 revenue guidance of 40 million, which is an increase of 240% from fiscal 2019 and places the company at approximately six times forward revenue, whereas FinTech peers are trading at about 10 to 15 times revenue. And lastly, the company is looking to list on the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange within the next six to 12 months, which could increase the exposure of this story. Boom. I'm done. Done. Nice. Just in time. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay, that was uh, that was good job, Brendan. Thank you. That was a case. I'll I'll give you that. It was a case. <laughs> that was a job. Yes. Yes. Um, okay, Ryan, are you ready to go? I am ready. Okay, go. Huge growth, zero profitability, 15 million in Q3 revenues, but Peak still lost over half a million and only managed to post 127,000 in adjusted profit at less than half the margin than the preceding period. High valuations, Peak trades with a lofty EV to EBITDA multiple of 260. Huge regulatory risk in Chinese fintech. Instructed by President Xi Jinping, All three financial watchdogs have made it their primary goal in 2021 to curb the reckless push of financial firms into finance. The IPO of the country's largest fintech and financial was already pulled. Peak also does not own one of its fintech platforms known as Kubler. It has just a 10-year supply agreement or exclusive agreement for rights to the platform in China. Finally, historic accounting issues for China-based North American listed stocks. Brennan may be too young to recall, but in the past decade, there have been far too many Chinese-based businesses that reported great numbers but were later identified as misreported or just outright fraud. That's why we stay away from these companies. Wow. You're, you're throwing some ageism in there. Um, okay. Yeah. Just kidding. A couple interesting things. I, 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 I don't personally know about peak fintech. I, I will say that anybody who follows Keystone's research knows that that we only recommend companies that are profitable, right? So if a company isn't profitable, it doesn't pass the criteria. But for the sake of these stock debates, I'm not. We're not following that criteria. We still have a profitability focus criteria, but if something I think can conceivably transition into profitability within the next, you know, two to two to six quarters, then I think that um, that it should be something that should be considered and not just dismissed out of hand, right? So, Brennan, I thought you did a really great job. Actually, um, I was really ready to go with you. Um, however, I'm going to have to go with Ryan on this one. <clears throat> And I'm going, to, I'm going to explain why. I'm going to explain why. Yeah, I hear you. I'm very, I'm very cautious when it comes... The, the company sounds very, uh, very interesting, but I'm very cautious when it comes to countries that are doing businesses exclusively in emerging markets or markets that are very different than, than our market here. And as Ryan said, um, there have been accounting issues in the past with um, companies that are operating outside of 
you know, the United States that don't have, or, or Canada, um, North America, or Europe that don't have an established presence in one of those areas. And I, we certainly would consider companies on a case by case basis. But I think that if I'm going to relax my profitability criteria, then I probably would want to have a little more confidence in um, some of the regions that uh, that the company operates in. So that that's that's yeah, my yeah. take. Um, you know, we may we, Ryan and I went through back in 2011, 2012. There were major issues, um, accounting scandals that came out of the uh, out of mainland China. Companies that were listed on Canadian stock markets, U.S. stock markets, but operated in those areas. Um, Zhongshui High was one. There was Sinoforest was a major one, like a multi multi billion dollar one. And you know those of those have us very cautious when we're looking at markets um, in in more emerging areas because they're they have they have evolving institutions and it's just it's not the same accounting and it's more difficult for the regulators over here to. Um, to to monitor that so that's that's yeah, my we rationale just, for for our clients we just don't believe it's prudent to have them uh position in companies where you have that level of risk now like these companies that uh were listed on the toronto stock exchange that had these issues were audited by like one of the top four uh accounting firms in north america they just uh, we're happy to take the money for them, but they weren't doing the job. And some of them didn't have access to, you know, even check financial, uh, just check a bank account, uh, which is a basic step that they should be taking. So, you know, the, they were actually sued for these issues. It's just not something we want our clients exposed to. Now, there is tremendous growth here with Peak. Um, it is great to see that growth. And there is likely great businesses operating in China uh, that are there's no issue with their financials whatsoever. But in this case, you know you have tremendous growth. The profitability, um, you know, the, their adjusted EBITDA margins were actually down over the last quarter, despite almost, revenue almost doubling, uh, and the high valuations on an EV to EBITDA multiple, like we said, 260 in that range. I mean, we talked about Ant Financial being pulled. Like that is the largest fintech company in China. Uh, through Alibaba, they own the, you know, the majority stake in that business. Um, you can buy that company at far lower EV to EBITDA multiple. You can, I think it's about, you know, 28 to 30 times than you can buy peak right now. So you can buy the biggest, the company that has the exposure to the biggest, uh, and most used financial or FinTech company, uh, for a far lower multiple. Now, the growth rates might be not the same, but they're still quite high uh, with Alibaba. So if you really want exposure to there, that might be a better route to go to. Yeah. And if I could just add to, um, I have brought it up on the podcast before, but there's a great documentary kind of outlining the fraud and the accounting scandals that have went on in China called The China Hustle. Uh, it's on Netflix. So if you have Netflix, it's a great watch. I would highly yeah. recommend it. I mean, it. Ryan and I lived through it. We, exactly. we yeah. watched it yeah, happen exactly. and, and watched yeah. different companies. And then, so, you know, so, Brandon, we don't have to watch that, yeah. okay? Yeah, we should be honestly <laughs> be interviewed in it. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no mm. doubt. But uh, yeah. but now, in, in regards to Aaron's, you know, uh, your verdict, I agree with it. You know, I, I think that it's a very interesting story, high risk, very high risk. You know, the company's kind of breaking into a little bit of profitability on an adjusted basis. But at the end of the day, you know, I would argue that it doesn't give us growth at a reasonable price. And, you know, uh, that's what kind of investors we are, growth at a reasonable price. So, so yeah, 
I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, those are the type of numbers and growth that really excite us. And, you know, the, the business seems to be executing, you know, if the numbers uh, you know, we're from a jurisdiction that would hadn't had issues in the past. It would be very interesting. Mm-hmm. So let's look at our uh, first Your Stock, Our Take segment. It's time we answer a question on Your Stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. Uh, Aaron's going to take this one. It's a stock comparison essentially between Granite Industrial REIT versus BSR REIT. Uh, Aaron, we'll take that one away. Excellent. Uh, We received uh, an email from a listener wanting us to do a comparison of a couple of REITs, uh, Granite Industrial and BSR REIT. And I thought it would be a great way to just not only just compare these REITs, but also just discuss some of the things that we look for when we're doing our research. So I'm quite familiar with both these companies, Granite Industrial REIT, GRT.UN. That is a company that's under current coverage. They own industrial facilities globally. These include manufacturing facilities rented primarily to Magna Corporation uh, and warehouse distribution facilities, which are used for e-commerce. Granite pays a yield of about 4% and it's a 4.6 billion market cap company. Now, BSR REIT uh, is a company we do not have under coverage, but I've, I've received many questions on the company in the past from clients and other investors. Symbol is HOM.U. It is an apartment REIT with properties located uh, within the Sunbelt region of the United States. BSR pays a yield of 4.7%, and it's about a $324 million market cap company. So one's an industrial REIT, one's an apartment REIT. Generally speaking, we really like the apartment REIT space. We find it to be the most defensive of the real estate asset classes. If you're in a good location, uh, people always need a place to live regardless of what's going on with the economy. Um, But in the case of Granite, we also like their focus on industrials because they're really growing their their warehouse uh, and e-commerce fulfillment uh, network. So they're they're exposed to the e-commerce space, which is an area that we like as well. So so the main factors that we're gonna look at here, and these are really just, this is really just a summary of some of the things that we look at when we're researching REITs in practice. We're going to look at the growth. Is the company growing the business? Uh, And most importantly, are they growing on a per unit basis? We're going to look at the balance sheet. How much debt do they have uh, relative to their profitability and their assets? And um, are they over leveraged? Uh, the, The income distributions, whether or not they're growing and also the payout ratio, how much of the cash flow they're paying out. And then finally, the valuation. So first thing we're going to look at here is growth. Um, Granite, in the most recent quarter, net operating income increased 28% to $77 million. Same property, net operating income increased 3.2%. Uh, and cash flow per unit, or, or funds from operations per unit, increased 3.2%. Now looking at BSR, in their most recent quarter, net operating, net operating income increased 4.8% to $15.2 million. The same property uh, net operating income increased almost 5%, but their cash flow per unit actually declined by 9.9%. And this is one of the things that I've seen uh, with BSR when I've looked at it over the, the last several quarters since it's been a public company, is that they are a fairly acquisitive company. They're, they are growing their revenues and their net operating income, but I've not really seen any consistent growth in the in the cash flow per unit. And that's really one of the most important metrics that we look at because essentially you are buying a unit and you want to know how much cash flow 
per unit the company is generating and the growth in cash flow per unit. So that's one of the things we like here about Granite. Also year to date, Granite's cash flow per unit was up 10% compared to BSR. Their cash flow per unit was down 24%. Uh, next, we can look at the balance sheet. How much debt does the company have? Uh, Granite, uh, the REIT, this REIT has one of the lowest debt leverage one of, the, one of the lowest levels of leverage on their balance sheet in the, in the entire Canadian REIT sector. And that's one of the reasons why we have liked it. Uh, we think that's a competitive advantage. They can grow, they can take on more debt and they can grow through that. Uh, but they have a debt to asset ratio as of the end of the last quarter of 29% and an interest coverage ratio of 8.8 .8 times. So we wanna see generally the debt to asset ratio being lower means less debt leverage and the interest coverage ratio being higher means they're covering, they have more coverage of their interest payments. So that's a good thing. So lower debt to assets, higher interest coverage. Uh, BSR has debt to assets of 51% and interest coverage at 2.2 times. So here we definitely see uh, points for granite, um, significantly lower debt to asset ratio and significantly higher interest coverage ratio. Now looking at the distributions, uh, Granite uh, recently increased its distribution 3.2% in 2020. This was the eighth consecutive year that the company has increased its distribution. And the payout ratio right now is about 50% of FFO, funds from operation or, or cash flow per unit. Now, BSR, this read has a shorter history. It's only been public since 2018. There have been no distribution increases in the company's history. Right now, the payout ratio to funds from operations is about 88%, which we would actually consider high. So I'm gonna give this one to Granite as well. And then finally, valuation. Granite trades at a valuation of approximately 20 times cash flow versus BSR, which trades at approximately 19 times cash flow. So a little bit uh, lower for BSR, but certainly given that, that Granite has the better growth, the stronger balance sheet, and the better uh, payout ratio and distribution growth history, um, we would say that 20 times is actually, for us, a more attractive multiple than 19 times is for B BSR. So this is the comparison. I, 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 between these two, you know, Granite would be my, my preferred company. As I said, I've looked at BSR many times in the, ca in the past. It's interesting to me because I like that apartment space and I'd like to have exposure into the US. A lot of those Sunbelt areas, they're unregulated markets, so there's there's really great rental growth. But what I wanna see is I wanna see that REIT grow their their business on a per unit basis, grow that cash flow on a per unit, unit basis, because that's, that's what's gonna lead to a lower payout ratio, more residual cash flow for the company uh, per unit, and also the ability to increase income distributions over time. Well done. Yeah, yeah. it's not exactly, like you said, comparing apples to apples, but you can see why we prefer Granite as a REIT generally versus BSR at present. Anything to add there, Brennan? I, I think that it's, it's also good too, because I mean, so it, we're not comparing apples to apples, but the one thing is since uh, Granite is in the warehouse, I mean, they're more susceptible to boom and bust cycles, I believe, because, you know, they're closer to the economy, not being an apartment REIT. But the thing is, is, you know, 
granite is you know they're more susceptible to the boom and bust but also you know they don't have much leverage which kind of makes them a little bit more defensive on that end and I, I really like the the granite recommendation just the fact that they are you know a play on the uh the um you know the what's it called uh, online selling you know where they they've got e-commerce these logistics yeah exactly yeah. thank you thank you no problem but yeah no i i think it was a great a great job Aaron. no that was uh that was fun to listen to yeah that's enough pat and Aaron on the back for one day so let's go to uh, your stock our take it's time we answer a question on your stock in a little segment we like to call your stock our take buy sell or hold Kevin via email, he said, just want your thoughts on Texas. It looks like a company with good potential as there is a large insider. Ownership seems to be expanding rapidly. Texas looks like to be positive cash flow with a net cash position market cap of about $590 million. Could have a lots of room for growth here. The market for supply chain management solutions, healthcare seems to be a good space right now with COVID factor, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Brennan, you've looked at Texas. I've looked at them a number of times in the past. I think it's a good company, good business, great balance sheet here. So I think the market cap right now is in the $945 million. But Aaron, um, Brennan, I'm going to let you take that yeah, one away. Yeah, I'll take this away. So yes, the market cap is a little higher than uh, what Kevin said in the email just uh, because he sent this back in January and we're just getting around to it now. So Texas Inc., TCS on the Toronto Stock Exchange currently trading at a price of around $61.80, a market cap of $945 million and about a 0.4% uh, dividend yield. Now, Texas is a global provider of supply chain solutions that equip organizations with services and tools designed to create clarity out of the complex supply chain challenges. Uh, Texas's solutions include warehouse management, distribution and transportation management, supply management at point of use, distribution order management, as well as financial management and analytics solutions. Uh, The company sells its solutions primarily on a subscription basis as software as a service uh, and also on a perpetual license basis with uh, recurring support. Uh, And of course, those uh, software as a service revenues are attractive. Now, just digging right into the financials on the company, Q2 of 2021, revenues for the second quarter were $30.7 million, uh, or 18% higher compared to $26 million generated for the three months ended October 31st, 2019. Uh, and the year-over-year increase was primarily due to cloud maintenance and subscription revenue. Adjusted EBITDA for the quarter reached $4.8 million, an increase of 29.7% from $3.7 million during the same quarter of 2019. Net earnings also had great growth. Uh, They were at uh, 2.1 million, an increase of 50% from the same period last year. Um, And on October 31st, the company had a net cash position of 10.6 million or 74 cents per share, which is great. Very healthy balance sheet. Uh, And just looking at a valuation, the company's Uh, trailing EV to EBITDA multiple is approximately 68 times, which shows the company is quite expensive. Now, just looking forward, the company hasn't provided any specific guidance, uh, but they did say that uh, total annual recurring revenue on October 31st, 2020 is 50.9 million, up about 26% compared to 40.5 million in October 31st of 2019. And professional services bookings in the second quarter of fiscal 2021 were 11.5 million, up 19%, compared to 9.7 million in the second quarter of fiscal 2020. So those are good guidance figures, essentially. So there, there should be some growth going forward, which is nice to see. Now, to conclude, 
Texas is a well-run business operating in the supply chain uh, solutions industry. The company has performed very well as of recent, growing both its overall revenues and recurring revenues, profitability, bookings, and backlog at a great pace. Now, Texas is certainly an attractive story as it has a good track record and operates in an attractive space, but seeing that the company currently trades with an EV to EBITDA multiple of over 65 times while generating top-line revenue growth of 18%, the stock is priced to perfection in my my opinion and therefore at this time we do not see the company offering investors growth at a reasonable price uh, and we are keeping it on our monitor list now to be frank uh, when I first came across the company in one of our market sweeps, I was very excited. I uh, pulled this company out. I was thinking that it was going to be, uh, you know, a, possibly a recommendation. But really what it comes down to is just the fact that you have to pay up to take part in the stock uh, with its 68 times EV to EBITDA multiple, which just keeps us on the sideline with the stock right now. Yeah, it's a good summary. I mean, I think Texas is a good business, a good segment. Um, they've actually had accelerated growth over the last two years. You look back in 2017, about 68 million. Then the growth in 2018 was up to 70 million in revenues. Then it went to 76. So decent growth there. But then in 2020, it jumped up to 104. And the trailing is up to 113. So growth has started to accelerate. Uh, what had held us back kind of in the past on the company was just, you know, it was single digit type growth. Um, it's getting into the double digit. If it could continue that and pull back, you know, with a quality balance sheet and a quality business, it might be one that we'd look at. Uh, it is a company that we think, you know, if you want to hold your nose and look at, you know, high valuations, if it continues to grow at double digits and um, continues to grow over time, you know, it could work into that valuation because it is a quality business. We'd like to get it at a more uh, uh, at a better price at this point. OK, I think that's going to close out our show for this week. Thanking Aaron and Brennan for co-hosting with me. Keep your questions coming into our Your Stock, Our Take segments, our case for, case against, and any uh, any individual stocks you want us to debate. We can get to those as well. And you can just ask us anything about the financial markets and we will answer. Again, I'd like to wish everybody out there, everybody stay safe and profitable investing. Thank you. Profitable investing. Thanks, everyone.